From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. How could indigenous tribes who were pushed out of Colorado come back in a meaningful way? Colorado is unique in that we don't have any reservations on the Front Range, and we don't have any reservations in the Plains. We'll hear how a land-back movement is growing, in part out of a massacre of Plains Indians in the 1860s. And a new podcast finds the tribes, and Coloradans in general, are still processing what happened and trying out new ways of healing. It was the first time that I heard about the term historical trauma and healing. And it was like learning this definition gave me words for an experience that I had seen and observed with my family. I'm Rachel Estabrook. A special Colorado Matters is next. Black Pearl. Sheila. Hermit. The Corn. Just some of the names belonging to beloved cars donated to Colorado Public Radio. And some of the reasons people gave for donating their friend. I couldn't think of a better cause for the last bits of her life. I'm sad to see him go, but glad to know he'll be of good use. It's easier to let go of your car when you donate it to Colorado Public Radio. Learn how at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Rachel Estabrook. Today we're talking about the modern-day legacy of one of the most consequential and traumatic events in Colorado history, the Sand Creek Massacre. U.S. troops murdered more than 200 Cheyenne and Arapaho people on the Eastern Plains. The podcast The Modern West from Wyoming Public Media and PRX tells the story of Sand Creek, what happened on battlefields across the region afterwards, and what's still happening in classrooms and politics today as a result. You'll hear excerpts from the Modern West focusing on Coloradans who are trying to create change for Cheyenne and Arapaho descendants today. The podcast's host is Melody Edwards. Welcome to Colorado Matters. Wow, it's so lovely to be here. Melody, what's the goal of this podcast season? What did you set out to do? Yeah, I set out to really try to connect the dots and just show how the Sand Creek Massacre, which is a historical event that I feel like has kind of gotten lost in the shuffle, I wanted to show how it not only led to a lot of the Plains Indian Wars all the way through the Battle of Little Bighorn and Wounded Knee Massacre, but not only that, but that it has continued to affect people in tribal communities across the West to this day. And one of the most important things that I wanted to do with this podcast was show something that I have just seen reporting on Indian country over the years, an amazing resilience and a real effort right now to start to heal that history. And part of getting to that healing is you go into great detail in the first few episodes of the show about the clash between U.S. troops and the tribes and how they didn't end with the Sand Creek Massacre. Why was it important to show people that in such detail? Well, you know, I think that we have these ideas that tribes during 
the Wild West era of our history, that they were just kind of the bad guys. You know, that's sort of what we see in, in a lot of the TV shows and, you know, all of our spaghetti westerns and stuff. But what was really happening, actually, was that the tribes felt that the Sand Creek Massacre had to be reckoned with. And so a lot of tribal leaders right after that realized that they were being pushed to go to war. And so this was their effort to try and protect their lands and their way of life. All of the battles that kind of came in the years after Sand Creek were a, a way of standing up for themselves. And so that's something that I don't feel like we understand in the history books, how damaging that massacre was and, and why it led to just years and years and years of conflict between tribes and uh, settlers in the American West. So it sounds like so much of what you wanted to do, not only by explaining that, but then also continuing it through to the healing and reckoning of today is about making the narrative of history more accurate. Absolutely. It feels like we, you know, I, I know that when I was growing up, I didn't hear about the Sand Creek Massacre until I read Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee by Dee Brown. And so I was really shocked by that. I was angry to find out that there was a major piece of Colorado history that I hadn't been taught, not only in elementary school or high school, but even in college. I went all the way through college in Colorado, and I never learned about this history. So I think that that's one of the things that is so important about getting our history right, is that you know, it's not just Native Americans who are trying to heal from this terrible history, but there's also all of us who live on this land that was taken from the tribes. We're also reckoning with that history as well. And just a note about the facts, there is some historical debate about exactly how many people died during the Sand Creek Massacre. You heard me use a figure in the introduction, more than 200 people were killed Later in the show, you'll hear another number, about 160 people. I just want to make note of that. But your show progresses to the modern day, and we're about to listen to a portion of your show, The Modern West, that focuses on something called the Land Back Movement. Can you explain what that is? Sure. The Land Back Movement has kind of been something that has been galvanizing in indigenous communities across the U.S. over the last few years in which tribes are kind of trying to reckon with some of this history, some of the facts about the, the treaties that have been broken um, in which, you know, land was promised to tribes and then was taken away. This is a, something that is not just theoretical. There is a lot of interest in trying to figure out, well, what does that mean? Can land back mean offering tribal members access to public lands for free? Can that be considered land back, giving them access to their medicines and to their sacred sites for free? Or does that mean including them in some management of those lands? Or does it mean actually literally giving land back? I think it's a really interesting conversation because it's becoming more and more nuanced, I think. Great. We're going to hear a lot more about that and one of the people behind that effort right now on this part of the Modern West from Wyoming Public Media and PRX. And Melody, we'll be back with you later in the show. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Let me introduce you to someone I met recently. 
Ah, mi daco yapi, lelon betaki lilo ashtelo, la cota imachiapi tatanka huhaska, na mila haska imachiapi Rick Williams, mie ogalala la cota na ake shaela. My name is Rick Williams. I'm uh, an enrolled member of the Ogallala Lakota tribe, and I'm part Cheyenne. And my uh, Indian name is Tallbull. When it comes to the land back movement in Colorado, Rick is the guy to keep your eye on. And he has the background to pull stuff off. For instance, he was CEO and president of the American Indian College Fund for over 20 years, a professor of Indian studies at CU Boulder, and a consultant for the Discovery Channel series How the West Was Won. Not long ago, Rick started poking around in his ancestry. What really got me started on this was I, I decided to research my great-great-grandfather. His name was Whitehorse. He was a leader of the Council of 44 and also a dog soldier leader. And when I got into that, I discovered um, these proclamations that Evans, Governor Evans, the territorial governor, had issued in Colorado. And as I looked at them, both of them were clearly illegal and very destructive to Indian people. The first proclamation called for tribes to go to a certain place in the state and stay there. And if you didn't go there, you were deemed hostile and the state of Colorado was at war with you. The second proclamation, which was even more destructive, when the first one didn't didn't do the job that he wanted it to, the, the territorial governor Evans said, okay, I'm now gonna authorize all Colorado citizens to kill hostile Indians and for your reward, you can take their property. These laws led directly to the mutilation and murder of over 160 Cheyenne and Arapaho at Sand Creek. Just by chance, I raised the question, were these laws still valid in Colorado today? And it turns out they were. And I spent a year and a half trying to get Governor Polis's attention to do an executive order to rescind those proclamations. Did Rick get those proclamations rescinded? Yes. Yes, in fact, he did. And that got him thinking that there was more that he could accomplish. Immediately after that, a group of us formed what was called the People of the Sacred Land, and we decided that we needed to do more as we were learning about the history of what happened to American Indians in, in Colorado. So we started this Truth, Restoration, and Education Commission. Or TREK. And they've since hired a consultant to help them investigate the economic losses to Colorado's tribes left behind by the history of the Plains Indian Wars. So we're doing an analysis of illegal occupation. We're doing an analysis of the loss of an economy because of the buffalo. We're looking at water rights and oil and gas production. And we're doing a, a comprehensive loss assessment. What's it look like right now? Two, three trillion dollars? You know, at today's values, if we use the calculations at the time of the taking and add 5% compounding interest, which is almost always done in a tort case, it's pretty substantial. It's billions and billions of dollars. And I think that that's important for people both in the state of Colorado and beyond to recognize how much we really did give up. How much did we lose? How much? How much? 
what a difference it would have made in our lives. We wouldn't be living in poverty. We wouldn't have 80% unemployment rates on our reservations. The Trek Commission is also investigating how Colorado fraudulently took possession of land that legally belonged to tribes by treaty. They focused on the Fort Wise Treaty of 1861. It should have never been ratified. We have evidence to that, to that effect. That's because two sections of it were bungled. A new Indian agent was assigned to bring in 10 tribal leaders to sign the treaty that would give up most of their land. Only one person signed it, and he was reportedly drunk. So they were never able to bring any of the tribes in to validate the second half of the treaty. And the second half of the treaty would be all of the land north of the South Platte, along the Continental Divide, up to Casper, and then back down along the South Platte River, encompassing Wyoming, uh, Nebraska, Kansas, and, and part of Colorado. That was Article 6. Then there's the problem of Article 11. It calls for negotiating with the tribes to sell the tracts of land where many of Colorado's cities along the Front Range were booming after the discovery of gold. But those cities didn't bother with those negotiations. That didn't make the U.S. Senate happy at all. Well, the treaty goes to the Senate. The Senate looks at Article 11 and says, um, we don't like this. So they take it out and they ratify the treaty. Six days after the treaty is ratified, the State Department sends a letter to the Indian, Indian commissioner saying, Article 11 was modified. You need to get the signatures of these Indian people on this contract because it, it's, you know, it's absolutely necessary. It's probably not valid if, if it doesn't have the signatures. Well, they never did that. It never happened. So you have two articles, Article 6 and Article 11. Article 6 invalidates any of the land taking north of the south. Um, Article 11 invalidates the taking of the land to the south. So all of the land in this treaty should have been deemed unseated by any stretch of the imagination. If you want to do something that's honorable and honest, um, that's what needed to happen, and it never did. In fact, the city of Denver muddled Article 11 even more. They passed a resolution saying that the city had been so kind and welcoming to the Cheyenne and Arapaho people that they were going to require the tribes sell their land for a dollar and a quarter an acre. But Denver wasn't kind or welcoming. An Arapaho woman was even raped in Denver while visiting. But remember that Congress had ripped that article out of the treaty before it was ratified. So this left this land up in the air, you know, was the was title transferred some other way? And when they realized that they didn't have legal title to it, Congress passes what's the con, it was called the Congressional Act of 1864, and they basically give the title of the land to whoever was on it in Denver at that time um, at no cost. And the Indian people were never compensated. They never transferred the title and they never were compensated for any of the, the title. So I would say that Denver is probably one of those areas that's real. it's really clear that the land was taken illegally. And, you know, we need to think about how what's going to happen to honestly deal with something that happened in the past. That means that the land that was supposedly given up in the Fort Wise Treaty over 50 million acres stretching across four states 
Trek has found that all of that land was not legally ceded. Then, in 1862, just a year after the Fort Wise Treaty debacle, Congress passed the Morrill Act. The ink wasn't even dried on the treaty when they transferred large portions of the land to educational institutions across the United States, about 10 million acres of land. Land-grant institutions, they're called now. The University of Wyoming, where this podcast is produced, received over 90,000 acres, valued at over $17.5 million, adjusted for inflation. Colorado State University got 89,000 acres, now worth over $10 million. And again, this was all illegal land. And they got it from the Utes, and they got it from the Cheyennes and the Arapahoes to create the institutions. So Colorado State University was created on the backs of Indian people. There's no doubt about that. If I was an honorable person and I had some authority at at Colorado State University, I would be seriously looking into this to see what could be done. What kind of remediation, what kind of restitution can you do to help create educational opportunities for American Indian students? Rick says Colorado State University is in a position to make amends for history. Interestingly enough, they still own 19,000 acres of that land that they should give back to Indian people. That 19,000 acres of land is generating oil and gas revenues. The interest off of this endowment should should be enough to accommodate, to give every American Indian who wants to go to college their free tuition. Um, you know, we have a wonderful vet school at CSU. I think they should have a, a special program for veterinarians, for American Indian students, and admit a cohort of 10 people every year. Um, that would help our communities. Rick says some colleges and universities are beginning to step up. South Dakota State University, who, very interesting, has got an American Indian president, and they begin initiatives to really support American Indians. And I think you're starting to see it happening across the United States. Ohio State University has done some investigations, and they're trying to figure out how do they make amends to what happened and and support American Indian higher education. Um, And so I think it's starting to happen. There's some other places like Cornell and, and MIT that really need to be looking at doing more. Cornell University was one of the biggest beneficiaries of tribal lands. They received almost a million acres, now worth $92 million. In total, 52 universities across the U.S. benefited from the Morrill Act. Rick says the time has come to right such wrongs. He set his sights on a specific goal, to make Colorado a welcoming place where its original people feel safe returning to their homeland. We need some long-term structural kinds of opportunities to guarantee a future for the people who were alienated from their homelands to be able to come back in ways that they want to. And so one of the proposals is to create an embassy in Denver to bring back the tribes and have them have a say-so in what's happening in their land, in their homeland. But Rick and the Trek Commission don't plan to stop there. How do we help the tribes begin entering into co-management agreements with places like 
Pawnee National Grasslands or Comanche National Grasslands or some of the other federal properties in the state. You know, we we believe that that might be an opportunity for jobs and, and developing uh, new economies for Indian nations. And we have one tribe that is determined to recreate a reservation here. They're going to come here and they're going to purchase land and they're going to call themselves the Cheyenne Arapaho tribe of Colorado and reclaim their territory. Rick says they want to create a reservation even if they have to buy the land instead of get it returned to them by the state of Colorado. He thinks such progress is possible with help from communities that come forward as allies. The city of Boulder is working with the Northern Arapaho tribe to give back the property known as Fort Chambers, where Colonel Shivington once trained his soldiers before marching them over to Sand Creek. That's an excerpt of the Modern West podcast. When we come back, Rick Williams tells us more about the idea of an embassy for indigenous tribes in Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Colorado's front range. Just where does it start and end? Why does Denver sometimes smell like dog food? What's the perfect seat at Red Rocks for the best sound? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Rachel Estabrook from the CPR Newsroom, and we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Help us all discover more about our state of wonders. CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Before the break, you heard about the idea taking shape that the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes and others who were forcibly removed from Colorado more than 150 years ago could have more of a geographic home here again. I wanted to ask Rick Williams, who you heard in the podcast, for more on the idea of an embassy on the Front Range. Williams leads People of the Sacred Land, a group uncovering the full history of what happened to tribes here. The idea of an embassy is pretty practical in a lot of ways that if you think about people who've been alienated from their land and there are things happening in that land that they've been alienated from and they have an opportunity to come back, that you really want to try to create an official capacity for them to be here, a government-to-government relationship and be a party to those decisions that are being made. In addition to that, we know that there are at least 200 sacred sites that are unprotected in Colorado, and it might be in their best interest to be here to to help oversee restoration of those or preservation of those sites. So there's lots of reasons why you would have an embassy or some type of official government standing in your homeland. We want our relatives to be able to come back home. And what does that mean, come back? In what way would they come back? Well, it could be in many, many, many different ways. I know one of the initiatives that they're talking about is finding a place to be able to bring the buffalo back. So looking at, at a large ranch or possibly negotiating a relationship with the um, National Park Service or you know, somebody like that to have a co-managed area where, you know, you could bring the buffalo back, but also to be, you know, something you have to consider the economics of, of those kinds of things, but maybe also other kinds of things. When you visit our reservations, um, we're living in some cases in a, like a third world country, There's significant poverty, significant unemployment, and 
little or no opportunities for new businesses. And so, you know, you really want to be able to create opportunities that take American Indians and bring them into modern times with benefits that they should have gotten and that were taken from them. And part of that's the land. And certainly that lack of opportunity is sometimes because public infrastructure has been denied to those reservations. Well, I think that too. And then, you know, they got pushed off into isolated areas that had the least least productive land. And anytime there was anything good on the reservation, the government took it and took advantage of it. And you mentioned the buffalo, which were exterminated, right, but had been such a crucial part of the identity and livelihoods of the people living here, right? Mm-hmm. Colorado had the last great buffalo herds. When you think about buffalo today, are you thinking of it mostly as a, a livelihood, an economic opportunity? I think you first have to look at it from a spiritual standpoint and a cultural standpoint is that we understand that that is our brother and and you know, that we know that if when the buffalo thrives, we can thrive. And so that's one of the basic principles of, of restoration is that you want to bring back the buffalo and then you'll have all of the plant life and other kinds of things that, that live in harmony with each other that you would be able to reproduce those. And hopefully, you know, it would be a, a big enough area that you could have enough animals so that you could market and make it a real productive, viable business. And so... It's a combination of things. It's restoration of the past, restorative justice. So I'm so curious, is there any precedent for this type of embassy for indigenous people in the United States? The Navajos have an embassy in Washington, D.C. I didn't know that. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, Colorado is unique because in many of the cases, the people generally had reservations in the, in the areas that they dwelled and and Colorado is unique in that in that we don't have any reservations on the front range and and we don't have any reservations in the, the plains one of the things I want to emphasize is when you think about land back we don't want people to think that we're going to be coming after private land that's not what this is about I mean you know Indian people know what it's like to have their land taken and they don't want to do that to anybody but There's plenty of federal land, and there's plenty of city and county land, and there's lots of opportunities where that need to be investigated about. How can you help this happen, make this happen? The other thing is most Coloradoans don't know about what happened in Colorado, and especially on the Eastern Plains and the the Front Range. You know, one of our dreams is one of my, my favorite friends, Rich Talbot, talks about he wants to have a cultural center out on the plains where there's buffalo and horses and, and also an opportunity, an education center so that other people could come and learn about the cultures of our people who are here and learn the real history of Colorado. I wanted to ask you to reflect. So when you launched this initiative, you had said, and I think it says this on the website, in a very short period of time from 1861 to 1864, Virtually all American Indians were removed from the Front Range and Eastern Plains. We want to know exactly how Indian people were removed from this area and exactly how much was lost. Do you think you're going to achieve that? 
we are very, very close to being able to determine who was here, how many people, what was the loss, what were the incidents that caused them to be removed, and the stories after they've gone. And I think that's as equally as important as what happened to them after they were forced out of Colorado. The Northern Cheyennes were in exile for 20 years. For 20 years, they didn't have a place to go to. Exiled in their own homeland. You know, when you think about that, if it happens somewhere else, you know, we, we find sympathy. I mean, we, you can think about the people from Ukraine, you know. What if when it's all over with, they don't have an opportunity to go back to their homeland? And this should have happened 100 years ago, 150 years ago. Is those people should have been brought back to their homeland in a good way instead of alienating them. Yeah, I mean, if I'm understanding you correctly, it, on a basic level, I mean, it's a very simple idea that people were forced from the Eastern Plains and the Front Range, and you want to find a meaningful way to bring them back. Yeah, you said it. And they're starting to want to come back. And none of this is to say that there aren't Cheyenne and Arapaho people here now. I mean, right? You're one of them. Mm-hmm. I don't want to discount that either. We have 100,000 American Indians living in the Front Range, and they could benefit from this relationship. They could benefit easily from, from having you know their relatives come back or other tribes come back and really change the way we see Colorado. Rick Williams leads People of the Sacred Land. After a break, more from the podcast, The Modern West. What is indigenous futurism and how's it being practiced in Colorado? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The Southwest United States has been in a drought for more than 20 years, a big problem for the Colorado River and the people who use it. Parched, the new podcast from CPR News, is about people who rely on the river that shape the West and have ideas to save it. We cannot just allow nature to disappear. Find Parched wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Alpine Bank. Today, we're talking about the modern-day legacy of the Sand Creek Massacre, where hundreds of Cheyenne and Arapaho people were murdered by U.S. troops in 1864. In the podcast The Modern West, host Melody Edwards will now take us inside a Colorado classroom making peace with a painful history. And she introduces us to the idea of indigenous futurism. On one of the first really nice days of spring, I find myself on the campus of the University of Denver in a classroom filled with Ph.D. students. Their social work professor, Dr. Ramona Beltran, walks in and the class quiets down. I think for our mindfulness and grounding, we should go outside because it's beautiful. She gathers everyone together and leads us down three flights of stairs and out into the sunshine. We all gather in a circle. Then Ramona guides us in some relaxation techniques. She starts with some deep breathing. And we'll just exhale all our breath on the count of three. One, two, three, and exhale. We breathe with the sound of birds singing for a moment, the sun on our skin. Afterwards, we do another exercise. Take a moment, walk around, feel your feet. You can take off your shoes if you like, on the ground. Be present. Feel your body connect to the earth. We walk slowly, meditatively, 
around in the grass that still hasn't turned green. After a long, hard winter, the warm weather feels luxurious. Hopefully that was helpful to get you into your body. The last exercise is just gratitude. So if you can, as we're walking mindfully back to the classroom, think about three things that you're grateful for. Going up the stairs this time, the group is much quieter. When we get to the classroom, everyone jots down what they're grateful for. Ramona asks if they want to share. Students raise their hands and list things that they realized they were grateful for, like this one. Uh, my partner Emily, who has really stepped up in the past few weeks to help me survive this last quarter of classes and um, is the chef in our relationship, so keeps me alive with food. Then Ramona puts the activity into the context of the course. The title of it is Indigenous Qualitative Research Methods, which, okay, is hard to wrap your head around, but it's all about teaching future researchers how to use storytelling as part of an appropriate method of researching indigenous issues, how stories themselves can be healing. You know, I want to um, come back to gratitude, not only as like a mindfulness activity, but it's also really good for healing trauma because it's part of you know, building neural pathways. So interrupting some of the kind of negative neural pathways that we have constructed if we've been impacted by trauma. And gratitude helps us to recall positive things, bring that sensation into our body and interrupt some of those other patterns that we inherit. Catch that? Interrupting patterns that we've inherited. It's something we could all use a dose of, no matter what our family stories might be. American history needs healing. And that's at the heart of all Ramona's work, healing indigenous intergenerational trauma. I think a lot of it has to do with how I grew up. So in a low-income, single-parent household, and my mom was very sick most of my life. In fact, my childhood is really informed by a lot of memories of her being in the hospital or being sick with some you know, chronic preventable diseases and mental health issues. And I didn't understand it, of course, at the time. I just thought, oh, there must be something wrong with her. And then as a kid, you think it's also something wrong with you, your family, your community. But she was also incredibly proud and she raised us to be very committed to social justice. Ramona's earliest memories are growing up in California, where she mostly took her identity for granted. My family is uh, on my mother's side, originally from Northern Mexico and are descendants of indigenous peoples of Mexico, particularly of Northern Mexico and Sonora. So I am a mixed race indigenous Chicana. But then one day, something happened that forced her family to move away. When I was about four years old, uh, we were living in the Bay Area in San Jose, California, and um, somebody shot into our home. And my mom was like, that's it, we're leaving here, it's not safe for you. She packed up Ramona and her sister and brought them to a small Oregon town where a good friend lived. You know, predominantly white, 
it definitely felt like it was clear that we were not from there. There were many instances of people asking, where are you from and what are you? So I grew up with that. So there's all these ways that, you know, we felt what it was like to be othered. Ramona's mom raised her to be conscious of civil rights, women's rights, social injustices happening all around her. So that was her headset when she got into grad school. I really noticed that a lot of the evidence-based practices and treatments that were being targeted towards people like my community didn't seem to be centered in that community. They seemed to be practices that were taken from mainstream approaches, but with some like cultural additives. One of my mentors calls it, you know, ad culture and stir. (laughs) Then one day she attended a lecture by the prominent Choctaw scholar Karina Walters. It changed the direction of Ramona's career. It was the first time that I heard about the term historical trauma and healing. And it was like, Learning this definition gave me words for an experience that I had seen and observed with my family um, over time. And there's something about that moment when you can name something that is so liberating because it takes that responsibility off of the individuals within a family and community and places them, you know, more where they should be, which is on structures and systems and history. There's a lot of research going on right now to understand the science of how trauma can stay in our DNA for generations. This science even has a name. There is a body of research called epigenetics that is really looking at the ways that our social environments impact genetic material surrounding our DNA and that those can cause things like higher risk of mental health issues or chronic um, health conditions, and that those things can be passed down through generations. So for instance, there's data showing how generations of Jewish descendants are still recovering from the Holocaust. And families who endured the 9-11 Twin Towers attack, the Rwanda genocide, descendants of African slaves, The effects of all these events are still written in their genes, the research shows. For Ramona, discovering all this science felt incredibly important. I wanted to study that. I wanted to be part of contributing to identify um, healing interventions for our community. What the research is, is finding is that those changes to that genetic material are not necessarily permanent. That they can be changed through behavior change, environmental change. And so when we think about that, it could be as simple as, you know, changes to diet and exercise or reducing stress. But Ramona says the cure doesn't only rest on the shoulders of individuals suffering from such trauma. It also implies that our social conditions need to and can change though, right? So the levels of stress that we're under that are directly connected to racial profiling, for example, or 
chronic exposure to pollution from industries in neighborhoods that are predominantly brown and black, if there were changes to the structural systems, perhaps those outcomes can be changed for the better. One major way that historical trauma manifests itself in indigenous communities is high rates of diabetes, a disease that Ramona's mother struggled with and that ultimately took her life. I was in Denver when I got the call. My mom, who was in the hospital with pneumonia, stopped breathing in the middle of the night and was in ICU. In her classroom, Ramona plays a documentary film for her students that she produced about her mom's death. I spent the last seven hours of her life by her side as machines gave her breath. Alone with her in the sterile room, under the neon lights, I sang her spirit out of her body. Her mother's death plunged Ramona into despair. She reached out to some Choctaw friends to see if she could still join them as they made a journey to retrace part of the Trail of Tears, the route where the U.S. Army force marched some 60,000 people from five southeastern tribes to Indian Territory in what's now Oklahoma in 1830 after the passage of the Indian Removal Act. Thousands of people died on the 5,000-mile march. I was just broken. And I remember one woman saying, if anything, this is the place you should be. Use this space to heal your heart. Cry all your tears that you need. And I did. <laughs> Lots. Even though she wasn't a member of the Choctaw tribe, they welcomed her as an ally. She carried her mother's ashes in her backpack as she walked. Ramona tells her students how grueling the walk was for her. So I met so many bugs I never knew existed. <laughs> Chiggers, horse flies. Did you know they chase you? They chase you. <laughs> My mentor likes to tell the story of how I was screaming, running away from a horse fly. They hurt. So, but every single one of my journal entries ends like this, somehow with some future-looking, some optimistic, and I was really wounded at that time. I was so grieving this unexpected loss. And so what I've come to learn over you know, the last 10 years as I've really been marinating on this story is that this is indigenous futurism. This is part of how we survive. Indigenous futurism an idea that imagines a flourishing future for indigenous communities once they've found true healing from their history. As hard as the Trail of Tears was, Ramona credits it for helping her through her grieving process. But how likely is it that a doctor or a therapist would actually prescribe walking the Trail of Tears as a form of healing? Not very. Which Ramona says goes to show how crucial it is to center indigenous knowledge within indigenous communities. We're listening to host Melody Edwards from the podcast, The Modern West. When we come back, how Ramona Beltran at the University of Denver is doing this and how stories are helping people maintain cultural knowledge. I'm Rachel Estabrook. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I think we've got time for one more song. Indy 1023 is proud to be a media partner of Levitt Pavilion. Thank you, Levitt. The season's underway with ticketed shows, plus over 50 shows open to the public. What a beautiful evening for some music outside. For tickets and the full concert calendar, levittdenver.org. 
Now, the conclusion of our show about the modern legacy of the Sand Creek Massacre, featuring excerpts from the podcast The Modern West. It's produced by Wyoming Public Media and PRX. Host Melody Edwards is in a University of Denver classroom with social work professor Ramona Beltran. Several years ago, she started a project called Our Stories, Our Medicine Archive, or OSOMA. It's built on the idea that storytelling heals. What people have said to us on multiple projects through multiple years, our stories are our medicine. Through our stories, we learn how to be in what people call right relation to ourselves, to each other, to the planet, um, to all of creation, really. When I'm feeling my worst, I, I go into sweat lodge or I ask for a ceremony. And then I see my community come and show up in a circle in that space around the fire. And I know I'm safe and I know that I'm cared for and loved. And I feel the presence of my ancestors there. That's one of the Osoma participants, Olga Gonzalez of the Yaqui and Otomi nations. The project started out as an oral history collection with indigenous people about their experience of cardiovascular disease and diabetes. But it immediately became much broader because health isn't just a physical thing, it's emotional, it's spiritual. So, for example, people have talked about different teas that they were given as children when they were having an upset stomach or, you know, if they were having anxiety, there was very specific plants and herbs that their parents would give to them. What's been beautiful to see is that folks don't articulate them as their traditional cultural knowledge, but then after they have shared that, they'll reflect about how, gosh, if I look back at it, I guess that is traditional cultural knowledge. Olga again. As a child, my grandmother, who is Otomi, I remember her visiting us and going to our garden and just picking things. And to me, it was just grass. I didn't know the difference. And she'd say, this is good for this and this is good for that. And then she'd turn it into lotion or shampoo or some kind of tincture for whatever. She says one of the biggest hurts for indigenous people is displacement from their original homelands. Recording stories, she's learned how people have found methods to soothe that pain. What we've also heard from people is that there are aspects of place that are transportable, that they bring with them. So either through the relationship they have to plants that they grow or plants that they use, or when they meet other people from the same area, or they're able to find uh, cultural practices that emanate from their original land, but practice them here, that those are ways that they can maintain that relationship to their original place and heal that relationship to their original place, even if they can't get back to it on a regular basis. And Ramona says it helps to learn more about the indigenous history of their new home. For Ramona, transplanted to Denver, that meant working to address the horror left behind by the Sand Creek Massacre. She got involved with a faculty committee to write a report about Governor John Evans, who approved the massacre. And she now serves on the board of the Sand Creek Massacre Foundation. I asked an elder from the Northern Cheyenne. We did a little bit of a presentation together in 2014, and I said, I'm not from here, but 
I hope you'll consider me as an indigenous ally and I want to be of service. What can I do? And he said, tell the story, tell our story. So she does. Every year, she takes her historical trauma and healing students downtown to visit the last few memorial sites from the annual Sand Creek Massacre Healing Run. Many of the students who maybe have lived in Colorado much of their lives, they don't know about it. And they don't learn about it until graduate school in my class. And what I see from them first is anger and sadness and guilt and then commitment. Once they see it and they have put their feet, you know, on the soil in these places, it changes them. And in that way, Ramona is not only working to heal historical trauma from within Indigenous communities, but also from the outside by educating the next generation of social workers. That's an excerpt from the Modern West podcast produced by Wyoming Public Media and PRX. I'm Rachel Estabrook, again with Colorado Matters. We're here with Melody Edwards, the host of the show. That ending note there, Melody, is so important that people getting educated in Colorado may not learn about Sand Creek at all in school, maybe until they get to graduate school. Melody, what's your big takeaway after working on this project interrogating the modern-day effects of the Sand Creek Massacre, what was the biggest revelation for you? I would say the biggest revelation for me, and I heard this over and over and over again when I was interviewing folks, is just really how resilient, how incredible it is that Native Americans are continuing to evolve and to take the traditions and the culture that they have been handed down somehow against all odds, even though a concerted effort of genocide was committed against them, they continue to thrive. You know, as artists, they're growing. As healers, they're growing. They're finding such amazing ways to take what is just a devastating history and continue to evolve and grow its communities. So I think that would be my biggest takeaway. And that I think that if they were recognized for all of the work that they're doing, that we would be able to see an increase in the amount of healing and, and for all of us, that we would be able to kind of be coming to terms with a really dark era of our American history. Thank you, Melody, so much for sharing The Modern West with us. The show is available to download now. The complete season, right, is out? That's right. The whole season is available to binge whenever whenever you have some time. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much. We'll link to The Modern West in the Colorado Matters podcast at CPR.org. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Rachel Estabrook. You're with CPR News and KRCC.